you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Well, welcome to Episode 5 of the Brandle Chambly Podcast with Jaime Diaz. Good morning, Brandle. Good, Good morning, Jaime. Nice to be here. Yes, sir. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, next week's 119th U.S. Open in Pebble Beach, the challenge it will present, the setup, how this is a big moment for the USGA. Also, I'd like to talk about Brooks Kepka, who's become a transformational player and somewhat of an enigma uh, in terms <laughs> no of how he's, how he's accomplished it. Uh, but first, let's talk about, Randall, your, your experience last week at the Principal Charity Classic in Des Moines on the PGA Tour Champions. Um, you know, I, I admire so much that you're putting yourself in the arena out there and, and love to hear your uh, assessments each week. Uh, this was your first uh, Champions Tour, or at least Senior Tour, uh, Senior Golf event since last year at the Senior Open. And... Uh, you know, you're, you're you're going at it as hard as you can, given all your other uh, commitments, and it's it's quite admirable. But tell me what you what you felt after that's over. Uh, it was invigorating. Uh, I loved it, uh, even though I, you know, played uh, a little worse than I thought I would. But uh, I almost look at what I'm doing as sort of a a re-education. You know, uh, it's it's been 15, 16 years since I've played competitive golf uh, with any consistency. I've played one or two events since then, but but really, I do just want to jump back out into the game and uh, refamiliarize myself with not only how hard this game is, but also all of the newer aspects of it. You know, how players train, how they get fitted for equipment, who they're working with, um, all of the diagnostic uh, measurement devices that the players have. Um, and, you know, look, I, I have a goal of, of winning out there. It may be preposterous for some people, um, but, you know, I've... It's not like I was a, a superstar, but I, I've won on every level I've ever played on, from junior golf all the way to the PGA Tour. So the one level that I have not really obviously even played, but it is still a goal of mine. And to do that, yes, I, 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 I'm, I have a full-time job. Um, so I'm trying to be as efficient about my time as I can so that I can practice as much as I can so that when I get out there, I can be competitive, uh, certainly more competitive than I was at this last one, although I had a number of really good shots, and I had my moments, but uh, for the most part, it was, uh, it was frustrating, you know, because I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do to compete the way I wanted to compete, um, but that just means I'm just going to work with that much harder, mm-hmm. um, you know, between now and the end of the year. And some of those things entail... Uh maybe exploring more into technique. Uh, you're going out to California, and you told me you're going to talk to an instructor that's very intriguing and also uh, do some club fitting. That's right. You know, I am. I, you know, look, I, I think there are some, some great advances being made in teaching. I really do. And I work primarily with a fellow by the name of Lucas Wald, who sort of have his, has his, uh, I think, early start uh, under the tutelage, um, uh, you know, of, a, of this um, – this fellow out in Hawaii who, um, who is, uh, I think, on the forefront of the biomechanics of the game. And, and there's another fellow by the name of George Gankus um, who is um, 
quite popular with the younger set. Uh, very successful, I think, in a couple of areas. He's successful in, in gaining a tremendous amount of club head speed, but um, in the shallowing out in the transition of golf swings. I've never seen a teacher who's had such an impact on the ability to get players to shallow out. That's always been a big mystery. So you go back and you start to look at the, you know, some of the best ball strikers of all time. They should get shallow very quickly and right on playing in transition. Hogan obviously comes to mind, but Byron Nelson doesn't get a lot of credit for how well he shallowed the club out. For a guy with an upright swing and then just became that's right. long, and flat spot. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But, it, I mean, I mean, it just completely shallowed out beautifully in transition, almost like Nick Price. And when you ask people, and for the 20, 30 years that I've you know, been studying the golf swing intently, and you ask instructors how Nick Price, for example, or Joe Durant were able to shallow the club out, you'd get as many different answers as you ask teachers. It's a, it was a mystery. Um, but I do believe that George has, to a large extent, figured out exactly um, the stretch shortened cycles that exist at the top of the golf swing or that should exist so that you reverse the process and go from steep to shallow. Uh, you know, you look at Jack Nicklaus's golf swing and all of a sudden it comes into much greater focus. Um, I do believe that, you know, at the top of his backswing is right shoulder and internal rotation and he flew his right arm such that in transition the shaft reversed the process and laid down. The effect of that is that you can hit as hard as you want when you're on plane. You don't have to make any compensating moves in the middle of the downswing. So, you know, um, you know the Kelvin Miriara is the fellow, I think, who did a lot of this work. A lot of people poached from him, learned from him. Um, and, you know, from that, you, you know, you got all of this, these wonderful fingers of great teaching. Like I said, Lucas Wald, George Gankas are just a couple of them. Um, but anyway, yes, uh, I'm headed out uh, tonight, actually, to, to spend some time with George tomorrow. And then I'm going to go down to San Diego and go to the TaylorMade Fitting Studio and, and um, re-familiarize myself with the whole process of getting fit with equipment. Um, partly, you know, for my job, but, but also partly because mm -hmm. I, I'm looking for the best equipment that I can find to put in my bag. When was the last time you were fit? <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah. I mean, I've always, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, mostly, I just go buy equipment and take it out and mess with it myself. And if it doesn't fit me, which mostly it doesn't because it is a somewhat tedious process, I give it away. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm, I can't tell you how many thousands of dollars I've spent on equipment and then just giving it away. Um, um, but I, I've gone through, I guess, you know, fitting for drivers, and I went through a fitting maybe about six years ago. Um, and the, the clubs were good. I just, they, you know, they were, a little, they were a little too hot, believe it or not, for my taste mm -hmm. that, I, that I got fitted for. So I ended up, you know, I have irons in my bag that are, probably 10 years old. I have a driver that's 17 years old. I do have a new three-wood that I got last <laughs> week at the Principal Charity Classic. Uh, that, you know, listen, I could, the advances in three-woods are crazy. Um, you know, I, I've actually talked to a few of the, uh, of the people whose job it is to make equipment and wondered why they didn't build more forgiveness into a three-wood. You know, recent studies show on the PGA Tour that you give a tour player's choices between any driver three-wood on a hole. They choose to hit three-wood as often or more often, they're going to hit that three wood in the rough. Yeah, that's amazing. The driver the driver's has, easier to hit. The driver's actually. easier to hit. Yeah. And, and that, now that is you know, counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. You think you're hitting the three wood to find the fairway, when if, when in effect it's it's really costing players. 
So, you know, I've wondered why they haven't built more forgiveness into the three-wood, but they have built more pop into the three-wood, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. You know, last week I was 250 front edge and able to get to the front edge with my three-wood. Well, maybe you'll find a driver that has that extra pop. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I I somehow think the (laughs) extra pop that's in a three-wood came from no pop in a three-wood to now rebound effect. I don't think... They put all all their energy into the driver. Yeah, uh, if if there's any more rebound in a driver, I don't think it would pass. (laughs) Well, that's going to be intriguing because obviously you've made some changes in your golf swing over these last because yeah, of trying what, you, to. what yeah. you've learned, and maybe uh, it, it will require some some things that you haven't seen in your own fitting. Yeah, so trying to. Speak, yeah. to. I mean, I, I you know I'm trying to get back to to more how I swung. You know, um, when I was in college, you know, I had a I had a I had a bigger golf swing. I flew my right arm, uh, certainly more upright, more hip turn, and. You know, I maybe wasn't the longest in college, uh, but I was longer than most. And, you know, I, I lost a lot of that when I played the tour. Yeah. I became, you know, for the, for the bulk of my career, I was probably a, you know, average distance. You know, one year I did finish 49th in driving distance. That's the best I ever finished. But by the end of my career, 2001 to three, as the Pro V1 came into play, um, or the solid core golf ball, I should say, because look, I mean, Spalding beat them to the punch, mm-hmm. and then you know Bridgestone came along, Nike came along, so I guess you know there were plenty of solid core ball options out there. Um, it just changed the game. Everybody got very, very long, mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden the game became, you know, inundated with with power hitters, and and that's where we're at now. Got it. Um, I'm curious. One last thing about this. As an analyst, you're a lightning rod sometimes, and, and you would imagine going in the locker room, there are probably players there, whether they're verbal about it or keep it to themselves, who would probably like to see you fail because <laughs> yeah. you're judging them, and they probably resent you know that that whole dynamic and uh, you know kind of want to see you get your comeuppance without, you know, without putting too fine a point on it. I just wonder if you're aware of that sentiment, and does it have an effect on you? Are you self-conscious in any way? Do you feel like extra burden to... To overcome or, or prove them wrong in any way, or, or or afraid that they will, you know, be validated in their feelings in any way. I suppose it comes with the territory. You know, when I played the tour, and you know, even this way last week, I, I very much enjoyed the other players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not call myself. I don't think anybody who knew me would have called my me controversial um, or combative. It's just the nature of my job. I mean, those that take issue with the way I do my job, that's fair enough. I've had their job for mm-hmm. 20 years. They haven't had my job for five minutes. If they came and did my job, I suspect if they had any um, ambitions of doing the job correctly, um, they would be very much just like me. I mean, I'm asked to make relative judgments every two, three minutes. Um, so those that have an issue with it, um, for the most part, they keep it to themselves, I guess, because, mm-hmm. you know, I had, you know, I ran into a lot of people last week who said, you know, love your work, keep at it, keep going. Uh, and I suppose those that have an issue, you know, just kept it to themselves. But, um, yeah, sure, I, I'm aware a lot of people would love to see me fail. Um, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I, I think Tiger Woods summed it up better than anybody last year when he was at a clinic. I know you probably saw this online, but he was asked about his intimidation. And he, I think he said something along the lines of he was aware of it. And I think he was asked something like, do you have any sympathy for them? And he said, if, if I intimidate you, that's your own. That's your problem. That's your own freaking fault. Yeah. Although he yeah. used another word. 
And, and I thought that's exactly right. You know, if, if you let something else get in your head, like the idea that the world, mm-hmm. several, many people would love to watch me fail, it's my own fault. You know, I, I need to be focused on what I need to be focused on mm-hmm. uh, when I'm out there playing. And getting completely absorbed in, wrapped up in the process of playing golf, uh, it's, it's a beautiful spot, you know, to get to. Um, you know, when you, when you see a shot in your mind and you're able to make the moves that you know you can make and pull the shot off, it's a, it's a beautiful moment. Um, it's, it's why it's really hard to get people off a golf course mm-hmm. to come to commentating because you, you just cannot duplicate the, the thrill of competition and the thrill of discovery. You know, it, I, I th- Hogan said somewhere that, you know, he wished there were more hours in the day and that he loved every minute of the time he spent hitting golf balls. And, um, you know, I can tell you firsthand, you know, it, it wakes you up at 4.30, you know. I was up at 5 o'clock yesterday morning. I got to the golf course before the sun came up just to go hit golf balls. And, you know, that's a day after being home. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's an incredible rush and thrill to go out and try to solve the problems of this game. And the mysteries of it. You, you know, you're trying to remember what you forgot. And, you, <laughs> and yet there are things, you know, I've learned that – and there's a line that starts Moneyball. I believe it's attributed to Mickey Mantle. It said uh, something to the effect of it's unbelievable how much, how a game you've played your entire life, you realize you know so little about few it. about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so, so little about it. Um, something along those lines. Um, it's unbelievable that you can play a game your whole life and, uh, and, and know so little about it. And, and I think that's, there's, there's still a lot of mystery to this game, and, and every single player is different. Their body is different. It changes day to day, year to year, so you always have to make these, um, these adjustments to your body, to your golf swing. Um, you're always fighting the demons. All those things are fun, and, and it's, it's, I think it's good for my job to come back and ha- sort of have a better understanding of the golfer's plight. That's beautifully said, and I think it, it sums up why you're a great analyst, because you're looking at the mystery from the greatest you know, perspective you can have, which is on the golf course in competition. Right. You know, I, 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 it, it is wonderful to get out there. Um, you know, I, I do exhaustive research, you know, I watch on TV, but it, it is hard to replace um, what you learn when you're out there. You know, it is hard to dig that up. Um, the tactile sensation of hitting good shots and the, the frustration of trying to get your body to do what you know it needs to do and, you know, the, the struggle in the gym to get your body to where it will behave the way it needs to behave for you to be able to do the things you need to do. Uh, and the strive for excellence that is so pervasive now on the tour, I mean, not that the didn't used to be but you know when I played the tour if you lost your tour job or say 20 years before I got on the tour if you lost your tour job you you know for the most part you were losing a job that <clears throat> paid you paid you well don't get me wrong paid you well but it didn't pay you well enough mm-hmm. um, for your your extended family generations beyond you to be set up for life which is how well players can get paid now you know Tiger Woods changed things exponentially so the attention to detail on the PGA Tour now is 
is significantly more than when I was out there. Um, they can hire experts to be with them. And, um, you know, to some extent, I think those experts need to back off when it comes time to play. But I do understand yeah. the need to hire those experts, um, not because it's guaranteed that they know something that you don't, but there's a possibility that they might know something that you don't that could help you. There's also a possibility that they hurt you, but to not turn that stone over um, is comes with a risk, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. someone's going to come along who's going to assemble the team or assemble the information, you know, and I think it's appropriate, you know, as we are now getting ready to talk about the U.S. Open in 2000 because of what Tiger did, it's, it's still relevant. Um, you know, he, he found a golf ball shortly before he got there that allowed him to have power and control to the extent that he never had. Mm -hmm. And that had a lot to do with him winning by 15 shots there. Yeah. So, th again, that was him assembling the pieces to the puzzle and beating his competition with, with talent and research. And, so. the, and the effect is never greater than when you first discover it. Usually, well, right? When well, you, that's you, true. You click into something. I'm not saying it was a placebo, but it, it made him probably feel like, I've got superpowers all of a sudden. Well, when you first discover yeah. it, that yeah. means others haven't discovered it. True. And then mm -hmm. they, they mm -hmm. catch up, and you've got to go make new discoveries. Right. Yeah. So, you know, to be on the cutting edge as an athlete um, is hard because you spend a lot of time, you know, trying to get your body and your mind and your golf swing right. But then to have equipment that is as as out of touch with everybody else as your talents Ability are, is, yeah. mm -hmm. um, well, then then you win by 15 shots. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, Pebble Beach, here we go. Yeah. It's it's classic. Tell me just your thoughts of Pebble Beach as, as, as an open <laughs> venue. What uh, is, it, is it the ideal one? Is it It is. It uh, is uh, the uh, ideal, I think, uh, venue for the U.S. Open. Uh, it's proven to be. Um, you know, uh, a place that really does divine out um, incredible athletes. Um, you know, Nicholas Watson, Kite Woods, and Graham McDowell. And people will say, you know, Graham McDowell maybe doesn't belong in that class. But, you know, um, you know, Nicholas had won 41 times when he got there in 72. Watson had won 30 times. Kite had won 16 times. Woods had won 19 times. So it was clear that they were... Um, you know, the best of the best. Um, and, and Graham had won five times in Europe when he got there, and he was um, exactly what you're looking at when you go to Pebble Beach, you know, uh, somebody who's very precise. And People will say, hold on a second, Tom Watson wasn't precise, but the year that he won the U.S. Open there, uh, he was in the top 50 in driving accuracy. Um, so it was a very precise year for him, given how far he hit the golf ball. And, and he was able to win there. But, you know, great scramblers who are, who are precise. Um, and, you know, beyond that, um, you know, the, um, the golf course is, is on everybody's short list of favorites. And it's, there's something about Pebble Beach that makes you excited that you went down this path. Mm -hmm. You know, I can remember playing there with Peter Jacobson and the AT&T going down 18. We were both playing well. I think we were both in the top 10. And, you know, the waves were crashing and the sun was out. And, um, 
you know, he looked at me and he was like, you know, this is why I wanted to play professional golf. Same with me. I mean, that, that, that's what I dreamed of was, you know, the, I think when you, as a kid, at least when I was growing up, one of the first tournaments that made a mark on you was the Crosby mm -hmm. then, yeah. now AT&T. You tuned in and all the stars were out there and it was um, just the most beautiful scene, you know. Um, and it's, it still is that way. There's no other place quite like Pebble Beach that I've ever been in my life. Uh, it has its own aesthetics and charm unique to it in the same way that St. Andrews um, touches your soul. From your intelligence, uh, what are you gathering is going to be the, the kind of setup they're going to have? You know, I think the U.S., first of all, the, the USGA is, is under the, the spotlight, you know, almost more so than any player there. Um, you know, yeah, they get criticized a lot for mistakes they've made in the past, um, but I don't think they get the credit that they deserve for running some very good championships. You know, 98... Um, because of what happened in 98, and I was playing in the, at Olympic that year, I was actually first off, so when I got to the 18th hole, my putt went up and came back. Came and, back to you. Yeah, and I yeah. thought, my goodness, this is going to be a mess. Um, nobody talks about how beautiful 99 was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, Daly had a Chernobyl moment there, a meltdown, <laughs> but, you know, look, it, it doesn't take – if McDonald's runs out of Diet Coke, he has a meltdown. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think um, – you know, I, we use that as the litmus test for uh, the absurdity of the golf courses. Ninety-nine at Pinehurst was beautiful. Two thousand at, at Pebble was was a wonderful setup. I played in two thousand one as well at at Southern Hills. Nine and eighteen, you know, they were they were a bit problematic. They had to slow those greens down so they were different speeds. But again, you go through. They didn't really have an issue except for obviously two thousand four, mm -hmm. huge issue. And then they had relatively, you know, controversy-free major championships until 2015, and and then they've they've had a bad run. 15 uh, it was a mess. Um, that's that's no place to play championship golf. Uh, no condition. In it. You know, it's 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 almost inexcusable. And then what happened in 2016 is is still inexcusable. Um, with Dustin Johnson, nobody can make sense of that ruling. Not three years down the road, uh, 2017. Aaron Hills was, you know, um, I don't think too many people look at that as as a good choice. Um, even though it was a fine golf course, mm -hmm. it's just not a good choice for a U.S. Didn't Open. Didn't have a character for U.S. No, Open. not at all. Shouldn't you know? You shouldn't be playing a U.S. Open on a golf course with fairways that wide. And um, you know, I think the setup at at Shinnecock was was not what they were looking for. Um, certainly not what players were looking for. So yeah, they're they're they're. It's almost as if they are trying to mitigate the results of oversights that they've had. It's like they created the problem, and now they're trying to mitigate the effects of the problem. You're talking about the problem being increased distance. That's right. Now they, it, it, you know, it, it was because of their oversight um, that the rebound effect in drivers was allowed to go unchecked uh, until the early 2000s. You know, it was, it was written into the rules that there was not to be a rebound effect. Well, lo and behold, here they come, big distance gains, and then combined with the solid core golf ball, and you get the problem that we have right now. So it was under their watch that, that these effects came about, 
and they're trying to mitigate them with sort of tricked-up golf. And along the way, they lost their identity. You know, the, the majors, the four majors, all had an identity. Uh, the Masters was about creativity and escape and touch. The U.S. Open was about intimidation, attrition, and execution. That's what it was. That's what it always was. That's what it was meant to be. Um, yeah, we can thank Joe Dye for that, perhaps, but I think he had the right idea because you don't want to mess with the philosophy of the Masters. They have their identity. The Open was about getting back in touch with you know the roots of the game and fighting Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. And then the PGA was every man's major. You know, it was... We're going to set up a golf. It's so hot, first of all, that we <laughs> we have to set up a golf course that is soft enough that it doesn't die mid mid PGA. So it was sort of every every man's major. There you go. You had your four majors. But when they <clears throat> the USGA started messing around with um, with <laughs> um, graduated rough, uh, you know, I think they lost their identity. And they allowed for the mistake and the recovery. I don't want to see a mistake and a recovery. Sure, I mean, if they recover, great. But I don't want it to become the main theme of the U.S. Open, which is more or less what the U.S. Open became. Well, I take your point. I wonder, though, with as many complaints as there have been about the setup uh, and the unfairness of the U.S. Open and being tricked up, to have graduated rough at the time was considered a, a movement, a, a progressive uh, move because well, it was more, it was more fair. <clears throat> the players thought it, that it it, it punished uh, in a proportional way. Right. The farther you missed the fairway, the deeper the rough you were right. in. Right. Um, yeah. But you feel that it actually hurt the integrity of the tournament because it didn't test that intimidation and that execution to the same extent. That's right. I mean, in theory, um, graduated rough sounds good on paper. Um, but that means that if you miss the fairway by two, three feet, you have a better lie than the guy who missed the fairway by by 20 feet. Um, in theory, that sounds great. It does. Um, but what ends up happening is, is that everybody can play out of the rough. Especially as far as they hit the golf ball now, the U.S. Open used to be about standing up in the, on the tee and knowing that if you missed the fairway by a foot, you were more than likely to to give up a shot. Now that is that's a that's a cognitive exercise. Yes, that's about intimidation. I know Mark O'Meara never had great U.S. Opens because he was somewhat crooked, not real crooked. But at the U.S. Open, he was crooked enough to be as crooked as anybody right. because he missed the fairway by two yards. That's right. And he always felt like that is just not fair. And it seemed like Mike Davis's decision to go to graduated rough when he took over in 2006 was a solution to that and that we we're going to have a better U.S. Open. Bad solution. Bad idea. Bad solution. Okay. It, 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 it's, not a, it's not meant to be fair. Mm-hmm. It's meant to set out criteria that you must adhere to. And if you don't, you're just simply not going to win that championship. Mark O'Meara won his championships. He mm-hmm. won in places where he could recover from the you know, occasional inaccurate drive. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted a place, again, great, great recovery skills, great pitcher of the ball, great chipper of the ball, great putter of the ball. Um, and it's appropriate that he wanted Augusta National and the Open Championship. Those are two places mm-hmm. where you can do that. Yeah. The, the U.S. Open 
is about not not just how good your golf swing is. It's about how good your mind is and how you can deal with intimidation. Or it used to be, you know. Um, it used to be. It's it's become very much like every other championship. It it doesn't put a premium on the having a great brain, a quiet mind, and the ability to find a narrow fairway with a very high cost if you miss it. But your understanding is that Pebble is going to be, as you put it when we were talking earlier, uh, your grandfather's open. It's going to be. That's, that's what I'm hearing yeah. is that it's going, the USGA is going to get back to what made them, what made the U.S. Open the premier major championship in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't say that it, 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 it would be, if you asked 100 touring pros, they wouldn't put it there. The majority of them would not make it the premier, uh, let's say, 100 touring pros who are hail from the United States because if you hail from anywhere else, it's likely that you're going to say the Open Championship is or the Masters, but, but certainly not the U.S. Open. But the U.S. Open used to be the championship that everybody wanted to win. Uh, it should be back there because, you know, if you listen to the players – It's not to say that the players don't have good ideas. It's not. But for the most part, the players are going to argue for fairness. It's their job to play a golf course that philosophically has sort of been meted out, vetted out, designed to bring a type of player out. Now, what type of player is that? Well, at the height, it's, it's the smartest the calmest, the clearest head, mm-hmm. and and that's that's the type of player. Look, Seve didn't win the U.S. Open. Yeah, didn't. Okay, he didn't. But Seve's a great artist. He was beautiful in the Open. He was beautiful at the Masters. That's why we look at the players who've won all four major championships in a different way, because we look at those players as having the diversity and every single aspect of the game. You know, creativity the ability to battle the elements, the ability to battle the heat, and the ability to deal with the intimidation of a USGA setup. I hear that they're going back to that, that they're getting away from the graduated rough. This is applause. Well done. Um, you're about 10 years too late, but but well done. Good. Get after it. Um, you need to have thick rough, narrow fairways, um, and then reasonable you know, reasonable greens. They don't need to be in. If you have a lot of rough, you don't maybe have to yeah. edge towards such um, such a fine line such on the greens. Absurdities. Uh-huh. Yeah, they need to channel their inner Joe Dye, Tita Green, and Kerry Haig on the greens. That's what they need to do. Well, this is really an interesting idea. At the same time, it is one that possibly could be could cause a lot of uh, a lot of angst and a lot of agitation and a lot of criticism from the players which has been happening a lot with the USGA recently, uh, fairly or unfairly, they're under the gun. Are they in a position to take that risk with a setup that might actually draw more criticism than if they played what they had been, as you say, the the graduated rough? It's a bold move if they're going to do that because of the public relations situation they are in currently. Well, I I think they started getting in trouble when they start um, getting worried about the criticism and answering the criticism, you know, they, again, they need to channel their inner Joe Die and mm-hmm. say, <clears throat> "I'm sorry, but this is the setup of the U.S. Open. We want to test the metal of 
players. Um, now they've they've hired uh, a couple of different people whose job it is to, you know, sort of make nice with the players mm-hmm. and handle the PR. And and I think they found a a wonderful person to do just that. Jason Gore has been hired by the USGA. He's an extremely popular player. Um, you know, with the players, uh, affable, smart, good player. Um, and so he's out there talking to the players, sort of saying, look, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Um, you know, in this day and age, I think, I think that's good. So they don't show up and get shocked and then start a social media firestorm. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you go back to Aaron Hills and there was a social media firestorm because the players got there and they couldn't believe just off the, you know, outside of the, the smallest misparameters of the rough, let's say, there was three foot rough. Um, and the next day they mowed it down. You, they shouldn't be reacting. They, mm-hmm. they should have enough foresight, enough, um, uh, you know, thoughts, authority, authority. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thoughts about how the golf course should play and then, and then stick with it. I think that's where they're at. I think that's what they're going to do. Um, I don't think they'll, you know, Pebble Beach is a, is a place where, you know, if they, if they try to get the greens running 14, you know, they're, they're going to have problems like they did in 1992 where there simply wasn't enough grass on the greens to, <laughs> to, uh, to soften the blow of the, the Poanya. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put that with the, with the, the fierce winds that, that can blow this time of year out there or any time of year out there for that matter, and you get the scores that they they had that Sunday, the scores that they had, I think, in 72 on Sunday, the, the average just under 80, 78.8, I believe, is what they averaged. So um, since the war is the highest, you know, um, Sunday average in the U.S. Open. So, the, you know, even though Pebble's not long, um, you set the golf course up difficult and fair. Mother Nature will do the rest. You know, last year there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of sturm and drang over uh, the rules the new rules, and uh, to the point where the players were really criticizing vociferously, even doing, you know, uh, pantomimes on the golf course, Jay Monahan finally stepped in and said, guys, you know, let's, let's <coughs> cool this because it's disrespectful, frankly, and, and counterproductive, I would imagine, to the authority of the USGA and the respect for the USGA. So <coughs> do you feel like the players have gone, because they've been enabled in some in some respects because of the USGA's mistakes and maybe the climate and social media and everywhere else that, you know, uh, exacerbates those mistakes in a, in a public way where they weren't necessarily as, as widespread um, in terms of the uh, people just taking it in as, uh, you know, a, a big issue. It was an inside golf issue, an inside baseball issue, so to speak. Now it's, it's become the lead story sometimes. So do you feel like this is something the players have a responsibility to temper, or is the the cart out of the barn and the USGA has become a, a pincushion until further notice? Well, I think there's always been criticism of the USGA. Uh, you know, you go back and you just you go to newspapers.com, Google criticism of the USGA, and you will get snippets of criticism from every U.S. Open by premier players as far back as you want to look. It's, it's their job to, you know, I mean, they're an authoritative figure. They're the caretaker care, care of the game. 
they're going to make decisions that are inevitably going to be unpopular. Now, they're not doing it with malice in mind. They're doing it for the betterment of the game. You know, I think the, the fact that they allow the, the pen to be left in was hugely unpopular. It didn't seem to be well thought out. Dropping from knee height um, seems a bit ridiculous. You feel ridiculous doing it. Um, you know, it would have been easier probably to say, you know, um, no lower than knee height, um, no higher than waist height, something like that. So you didn't have to bend down and scoop or curtsy while you were doing it. But, but we live in an age where everybody has a voice, mm-hmm. and you know, do you do you care? I mean, if you're the USGA, do you really care? I mean, you, you shouldn't care. You, sh- you should know what you had in mind. You have the betterment of the game in mind. And inevitably, players are going to get upset. And let's say 20 players tweet something. Well, there's hundreds, thousands that play the game professionally. 20 players tweet something. And you're always going to get the dregs of society uh, who are unhappy with every aspect of their life. We're going to jump on Twitter and, and beat any drum that's negative. You can't allow those people to define the narrative. You know, why do we allow negativism that is is inevitable on any social media um, to define the narrative? Um, You know, we have such a negative bias, all of us. um, And if there's one thing that social media should teach all of us is to to fight that beast. You know, don't let negative... um, our negative biases control the narrative. Uh, the USGA, they were trying to do the right thing, speed up the game, make the rules more more palatable, uh, more digestible. I think for a large part they, they did that. I just played last week, um, had a couple of instances where players hit it way offline. Three minutes goes by really fast. Yeah. And, and you got to get on with it. Uh, you know, putting with the pin in, believe it or not, is, is – as ill-conceived as I think the idea was, uh, you know, you had a 50-footer. No longer do you do you ask your caddy to go yeah. up and tend it. You just get on with it. Um, so, you know, initially, you know, I, I think it makes you you putt with Venom for two reasons. One, it's it's faster, and two, because if you hit a poor putt and it's dead on line, the pin's going to stop it. So, um, you know, they had the right idea which is to speed up the game so i i they're nice people the usg i've met a lot of them uh don't don't many of them real well but they're nice people and they're they're embedded in the game of golf they're not these evil Mm -hmm. empire lawyers sitting in a in a uh in a room trying to ruin the lives of touring professionals well i think it's admirable um if, if they ha- that they do stand on principle and they do stand on tradition i think it's more difficult in this time and there's also the fragility that David Fay pointed out, the ex-executive director. Uh, we rule by the power not vested in us. In other words, there's no official, you know, legal. <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah, no That's legal status line. that the USG. Nobody has to follow them. Uh, and I think that idea started not to gain currency, but started to, you know, kind of uh, occur to people. Like, why are they, you know, all-knowing and all-powerful? And I think maybe in, in, in a world where everybody has a voice, their authority has been questioned more than it might have. And I hope the pushback from them is, you know, for the betterment of everybody, you want an authority. And we're the best position to do it. That's, that's right. These are smart, smart men and women. Uh, you know, I, I go back to the 74 U.S. Open um, when 
players were putting it off the first green. Um, you know, I think seven over one. And they wrote a book about it, you know, The Massacre of Wingfoot. Uh, and that was the year that Joe Dye had the greatest line, I think, ever uttered by an administrator that we're not trying to embarrass the best players. We're trying to identify them. And what difference does it make if seven over is the winning score or seven under? The score is irrelevant. It's about putting the players through a test, uh, a mental test, a physical test, a technical test. And that's what the U.S. Open is supposed to be. It's supposed to test all aspects of your game. Um, that's not my business to run tournaments, but if it were, you know, sitting where I'm sitting now with just the passing thoughts of how to set it up, I think I want to test technique, I want to te test um, strength, I want to test touch, and I want to test their minds. More than anything, I want them to have to think. And, and that means dealing with adversity and having patience impatient players shouldn't win the U.S. Open. You know, they, they just shouldn't. Um, you know, they, they, they should be meted out, kicked to the side, <laughs> abused and humbled and told to go grow up. Yeah. That's, that's what the U.S. Open is meant to do. And if you can't do it, well, you know, good luck. There's other majors. There's other majors, <laughs> but not this one. Yes. You're meant to be a mature badass. Yeah. Tee to green. Um, Male or female, um, that's what the USGA was to me growing up, and I, I, I'm desperately hoping that's what they get back to. Just for the record, I, I, not to you know be a pedantic here, but it was Sandy Tatum who had that great quote. Sandy Tatum, it's okay, yes, it's okay. Yeah, see another great guy. No, he was a great yeah, guy. Yeah, that's Rest right. Peace, Sandy. Thank you. We lost great. him a couple yes, of years ago. Yes, okay. yes. My bad. Thank you for that. No, no not at all. That's that's uh, that's one of the reasons I love you. Just last thing about Pell. What what do you think they need to accomplish that would help? The situation, just as you're saying, I stick to your guns. But what, 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 at the end of the day, on Sunday evening, what what would be a good result for the for the future of the USGA um, from Pebble? To go controversy free. We said it last year, you know, to go controversy free, and then you know they just couldn't help themselves, and you know. I think it was an inadvertent error in defense of them, but it happened. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was yeah. inopportune. They, they, they yeah. knew the weather forecast. The weather forecast was there. It wasn't different than they, they said knew, it was. They, it was they knew it be. needed more water if the water didn't get put on, yeah. for whatever reason, on Friday night. But it's yeah. not like it's the first time they got to that golf course. They knew, when you go talk to members there, that whole location was very dangerous. Everybody knew it. And to push the envelopes, like, why take that chance? For yeah. what reason would you take And why are you taking that chance? Why would you take that chance? Your job is to set up a golf course. You know this golf course inside and out. You have people on your staff whose sole mission is to help you, who are, who are familiar with that golf course, who remembers there, to tell you the dangerous spots and to avoid them, to go controversy-free. You know, inevitably, you know, Mother Nature could go on a tear at the Open Championship, and it's sort of they didn't know at, at Pebble in '92. I recall that, right? I it's mean, they couldn't they couldn't get over the yeah. the rough on six in the second shot because the wind was so hard. Excuse me. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I played '92. I played 2000 at Pebble Beach. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was there was a fair bit of rough there, um, and, and some controversy yeah. in '92. Yeah. No, no controversy in 2000 because everybody <laughs> was apoplectic looking at Tiger Woods, but. Yeah, to go controversy-free again, but it, let's not pretend it's easy to do what they want to do. Well, they want to set up a golf course that is um, very challenging, 
and hopefully get back to the rough. And if Mother Nature comes along, they have to be very conservative. You know, the PGA Championship, you know, they, when's the last controversy that they had at the PGA Championship? When's the last controversy they had at Augusta? But when's the last controversy they had at the Open? I think Augusta's masterful because they, they do have a, a golf course that has a lot of variables. The PGA but, Championship But they have the benefit of knowing that golf they course know it, very well. Yes. I would just say about the USGA because I admire their mission, which is the ultimate test of golf. They're trying to get closer to the line. And as a result, it's easier to go over the line. That's not an excuse, but they are playing on a, a with narrower margins on a tighter tightrope. And, you know, you never want to see, you know, a bad mistake but I think they should be forgiven for the small mistake now and then in the interest of that challenge. And they you were mentioning that they challenge would, yourself. They would be if those small mistakes didn't happen one on top of well, the other. Well, th- there's no question. So they they, they would know, admit. It's tough to get past yeah. Chambers Bay. It's tough to get past the ruling at Oakmont. Those are – and it is tough to get past that whole location on Saturday last year at Shinnecock. Those are – those are three mistakes in four years that are that are that will linger, you know, like a bad smell for for a while, you know. Um, so, you know, they need to they need to have a mistake free week, and you know they've got a different person setting up the golf course. They've got PR people now. Um, you know, I think the players will be, uh, I think, more inclined now that they've got sort of a liaison in Jason Gay and J- Jason um, Jason Gore. Yeah. Um, um, you know, now that Jason Gore, and they've got a, a wonderful PR person, I believe, in um, Craig Annis. Mm-hmm. Um, Jenny so, School, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I think the players will have sort of a, a softer ear, I think, uh, when they get to, or a lighter touch on oh, okay. social well, that, that media. Might be, that may be counter to what I think so. others' expectations, but I, I, I hope they do have a little empathy this is a this is a big moment, and uh, it is. But yeah, yeah. Pebble, Me- Pebble Beach makes everybody um, more I mean, reflective. In a good mood. <laughs> yeah, I think so for <laughs> the most part. That's good. Let's let's move on to Brooks Kepka, who's a fascinating study. What he's accomplished, you know, if he if he happens to win at Pebble, it'll be five out of nine. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> ever won five out of nine except Tiger, who won five out of six and seven out of eleven. But no, I was looking it up, and I had some <laughs> researchers help me. No player. If you're talking about consecutive majors, not the, if you skip the major, that's still counted as a major, you know, attempt. Um, no one's ever won five out of nine. So Brooks Koepka has become this specialist and this very special um, character study in golf. So what are your and you've commented on him and been criticized and you know well, and and you have I know evolving thoughts about him. What are they? I do. You know, uh, what he did at, at Bethpage uh, certainly changed my view of him to play alongside Tiger Woods, to shoot 63 in the first round with Tiger Woods. You know, I said it at the time, I believe it, it's, it's the best golf that, in my view, that Tiger Woods would have ever seen, um, that, that he didn't author. Um, n- no player of that talent ever threw that kind of golf at Tiger Woods while playing with Tiger Woods. You know, to, to withstand the, the chaos of, of the Tiger Woods arena and the intimidation of Tiger Woods himself. You know, I, I, to some of that, I mean, Tiger has become much more affable with his with his peers. They're probably not not his peers anymore. They're they're um, 
you know, a generation removed from being his peers, but or two. But you know, I, I think that helps eliminate a little bit of that intimidation. You know, the Tigers friends with these players. I don't think he, he could have said that in you know earlier part of Tiger Woods' career. You know, it's almost like the Hogan Jack Fleck sort of syndrome where yeah, Hogan you know, was nice to Fleck. He was nice to Fleck, <laughs> and Fleck played <laughs> unbelievable golf and beat Hogan. Um, but the chaos of that world is 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 still huge, and to see Kepka do what he did was uh, was 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 marvelous. I loved it. It was it was the type of golf I don't know if I've ever seen. No, I've never seen anybody play the first two rounds of a major championship better than what Brooks did. And you know, that golf course had thick rough. It was a beast. Um, it was uh, it was hugely impressive. And to see somebody do that uh, and and not not look ahead and think, well, um, he's capable of, of doing exactly what he said, you know, you know, for him Double to, digits, yeah. and, and what he did the week, you know, the whole week saying that majors were the easiest to win, explaining in detail why they were the easiest, easiest to win, to, to literally say, this is what I'm going to do and then go do it. Um, I, I can't think of another player that's ever done that. Never. I've never, ever heard a player go into the media center and so accurately predict themselves winning a major championship he kind of did it at Shinnecock um, which again I've spoken to here many times and you know, I, I was hugely impressed when he won those major championships his first three but they were at least in my view all sort of on the same golf course um, wide open or no no huge penalty for missing a fairway that's not the case with Beth Page and he got up there again and he said, majors are the easiest to win. I see no reason why I can't win double digits, <laughs> which is preposterous to say. And then he went out and did it. I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, these are the predictive poems of Muhammad Ali. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's what made Muhammad, well, one of the many things that made Muhammad Ali so appealing was he could tell you what he was going to do, yeah. and then he was going to, and then it he went and did it. It ain't bragging if you can back Nobody it up. Nobody does that in golf. <laughs> Nobody well, has. I was going to say that. golf is the humbling game. You know, you don't want bravado; it's going to bite you. Well, there are too many variables. You right. get into a boxing ring. There's just you and that guy, and the poems were part of the intimidation. I have no doubt, and you know, part of the fun and keeping himself loose. They had they served a purpose. Um, I, you know, there's always. The game of golf is so full of variables. You could tee off at four o'clock and be playing, or I'm sorry, two thirty, and be playing right. an entirely different golf course. And you're not really play playing another guy. You're playing the golf course, and you're playing your own changing self that day. That's right. And you, you and don't know what you're going to wake up with. And yet, he had an incredible sense of of, of self, a sense of centeredness, and I, you right. know. I, it's funny you do. You're very right. I, I can't recall anybody coming into the press room and, and being never in any way braggadocious. Maybe Greg Norman had some of that, uh, but it, it felt a bit more um, sort of prepared and not organic. Oh, like it, like he was almost talking to himself in a way. It uh, it, it actually seemed authentic to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't I didn't get the sense that he was bragging. I, I, you're talking about Brooks now. Brooks. When, yeah. You know, I, I've when. When other players have even sniffed going that direction, I've, I've felt like it was 
braggadocious. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was their insecurity manifesting in arrogance. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go back and you you can read Tiger's interviews in the media center, he was always very cagey, clever, but cagey about his expectations for the week. Um, You know, Tiger, are you the favorite this week? I think experience will matter this right. week. Uh-huh. Um, I've I've been here before. I'm comfortable in this environment. He'd never directly answer the question. He would say things, you know, um, you know. Do you think you have the advantage of this particular player tomorrow? Um, I've done this. I've been here before. That'll matter. You know, those those sorts of things. He he would never. He never put himself out there. Never. As, I'm going to never. do this because obviously that yeah. he was he's very clever, Tiger, and that that would have become a headline. Sure. And it would have distracted him because he would have had to answer that question, and then he'd had to be more nuanced in his description. But Brooks just flat out said, "Majors are the easiest to win. Here's why." Um, Jack had said that. Jack never would say it before a major. He'd say it in reflection, perhaps afterwards, or in a in a feature story where he was, you know, kind of away from competition, That's right. That's and he right. was assessing his career. That's but right. But never in a moment where he would have to back it up the next day. That's right. And know? and yeah. as far as I know, I, I never remember Jack at a major saying, "I'm going to win double digits," or "I'm going to get to." 18 or No, as 15. he said, he didn't know how many he had or that it was even a chase until 13 uh, when somebody pointed out that's how many J- Bobby Jones had counting his amateurs. Which, which yeah. by the way, happened coincidentally in the 1972 Open at Pebble Beach. That was Jack's mm-hmm. 11th professional men, so, so it tied mm-hmm. him with Walter Hagen in professional majors. And it was his 13th overall counting major back when you count amateurs and tied him with Bobby Jones. So in, in one week, he tied most professional major wins and the most major wins including amateurs so it was a momentous week and he was certainly asked about it when he was and he was reflective for sure you know you, you I've read stories where he's like ah, I didn't really know I didn't pay attention yeah, to it was but, hard. It's but I read that story and it, he definitely knew well um, his dad was one of Bobby Jones's greatest yeah, fans he, he definitely he knew, knew Bobby Jones's record and right. Bobby Jones had been a, a, a great influence on Jack whenever mm-hmm. he visited him at the Masters mm-hmm took him under his wing in some ways and uh but Brooks is what's great about Brooks is he's this you know he's the opposite of Greg Norman and I don't mean this as any disrespect to Greg Norman I mean Greg was an amazing player 331 weeks as yeah, number, number one player one. Yeah. I mean miles better than anybody who you know had a chance to you know who was number one in the world with the exception of the Tiger who was miles better than Greg Greg was a worldwide dominating player but in the big ones um, he was a disappointment you know I think Greg would admit that I think he was a disappointment he couldn't he did not have the calmness or the reliability under pressure to get it done in the biggest events that's become as much his legacy as his dominance and his power you know, there are other athletes who had all the talent in the world but didn't get it done in the biggest ones. You know, Dan Marino, Ted Williams never won a World Series. So there's numerous examples of athletes who were prolifically talented and successful in their arenas except for the biggest events for whatever reasons. And, and the implication is that, you know, they let the moment get them. Does it see a player who 
it seems like he's bored in regular tour events. Mm-hmm. You know, where's he been since the U.S. Open? He hasn't even played. He hasn't even played. I'm he's, sorry, where's he been since the PGA? Right. He hasn't even played. And, and, and it's like he's going to disappear and he's going to show up. He's, you know, won, he's won two. Right. He's one. He's 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 <laughs> only one two, you know. Uh, one more than me. Okay, <laughs> a few more majors than me. But he, it's like he's bored. It's like in this. I was explaining this to Billy Horschel, who I saw Billy Horschel. I was calling Colonial, and I walked off the <laughs> this set, and Horschel says, "Hey, Brandel, would you stop being an asshole?" And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I have that relationship with sure. Billy Horschel. I love him. And uh, I started laughing. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, your thing with Kepka. I go, did you, did you read the headline or did you hear exactly what I said in the context that I said it in? I just basically said I needed more evidence, which he provided me. Anyway, we ended up having a you know, wonderful converse, conversation. Um, uh, you know, Brooks is, is an enigma, as I, as I was explaining. I said, is he the player? who's only won two tour events, or is he the player who's won four major championships in a very short period of time? So I, that's the enigma. I, I can't decide who he is. But in the meantime, he just keeps winning major championships. So, you know, he, you know, Serena Williams was a lot like that. I mean, she, she never mind. I mean, I think she won. She won outside, her share. Outside of majors. But she would peak at majors. She, she's, yeah. she, I think she's, she won right at 50 regular uh, tournaments. 23 major championships so a disproportionate number of major championships compared to her other victories she just like show up and and it was got the best out of her and maybe that's and we've never really had a player like that no you know we've never in the history of the game players who won majors at the clip that brooks is winning them at or anywhere close to that clip won prolifically in regular tour events so maybe that will be the next chapter of Brooks Kepka's career is in between majors. He'll dazzle us with the same talents that he has at major championships. But look, again, he's nowhere to be found. He wins the PGA. Off he goes. Um, you know, he, he turned down all media in New York City, which, I, you know, I part of me admires that. And part of me, part of me thinks, well, this is part of the reason why you're overlooked is because – you don't go make these media tours. He won in New York City. You know, all the media in the world is right there. All the shows in the world are right there. Um, but on the other hand, he didn't want any part of that. He wanted to go celebrate with his team, and I, I admire that to some extent. I think that's uh, that's impressive. Not to go bite or try to take a, a advantage of the opportunities that, that his, his win afforded him in the media world. Do you think there's a chance that he's actually the next sort of progression on the evolution of of the player? In other words, I'm not saying he's better than Tiger, but I'm saying he's grown from that, you know, uh, that period of time when, when Tiger was supreme. And in the interim, when Tiger lost his number one position, that seven or eight, ten years, and several others rose to that position, Rory, DJ, Jason Day, uh, Jordan. Um, a lot of these guys, uh, very long hitters, very powerful, very gifted, seem to have a slight hole in their game. Oh, yeah. Uh, somewhere, usually in the short game, in the putter or the short game. Uh, DJ kind of plugged it up with the wedges. The putter probably still there a bit. In some cases, 
you know, like a Justin Rose, very complete, probably not the great closer. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing in Brooks, I'm not saying everything, but very small holes, if any. So are we short shrifting his game? We talk about his mental capacity and his strength and his grit. That's that's great. Um, how about – and his stats don't necessarily reflect it, but does he have a level of game? And you said, you know, this is the best I've ever seen anybody play against Tiger head-to-head. That's the best golf Tiger's ever seen from an opponent. Does he have something that we're either underrating or hasn't been quite proven yet but, sus- but gives us a suspicion that it might be special? Look, statistics summed up Tiger. You know, as much as we want to say they didn't sum up Tiger – because nobody had ever won at the clip Tiger won at. Statistically, he was a god. You know, he drove it nine miles. He drove it with control. Uh, I'm talking about Tiger Woods, you know, 99-2002. He hit his irons better than anybody else. He putted and chipped as well as anybody ever had seen. all of that was reflected in the statistics, and it was all reflected in his scoring averages. It was all reflected in his par threes, par four, par five. It was all reflected in his bounce back. It was all reflected in, in every delineation that you want to look at of statistics. You could find, if you just looked at that and didn't know who he was, you'd think this guy the best one. is miles better than everybody else. His scoring average 67.79 in 2007 and 2000. Okay. Upwards of two shots better than the next best player. Two shots. Two two shots, okay? He was represented in those statistics. You can't find Brooks in his statistics. You can't find what he's doing in his statistics. You can find a very good player, but you cannot find what he's doing in there um, other than how aggressive he is. Yes, he's, he's good. He's good all the way through. He's, he's good even very good but you can't find a player who's going to win four major championships in a very short span of time so that's why I say he's an enigma he shows up at the major championships and plays far better than there was any evidence that he would so now he's won four and what what I'm pulling for what I'd love to see is you know, how long has it been since we've seen anybody besides Tiger Woods win more than six major championships? You know, you have to go back to Tom Watson. Mm-hmm. And that was a long time ago, you know. that was. But Tom had a span very much like Brooks. And before that, know? a Gary Player. And before that, Gary and Player. Then, and then after that, the ancients, except, yeah. except for Jack. You know, Arnold yeah. Palmer. And so you start talking about... Yeah. Mm-hmm. The faces on Mount Rushmore right, right. Is, is who you're, you're talking right. about. You know, Okay, golf needs a bigger Mount Rushmore. <laughs> okay, we're, we can't just settle at three. Um, but uh, so, the, you know, that's, that seems to be where he's going. Now, there are so many pitfalls, you know, so many. You know, changing your swing, injuries, a personal misstep that causes you a huge distraction complacency, um, any of those are enough to extinguish the flame. And, and then it's gone. Nobody would have ever guessed that, that Tom Watson's last major was 83 or Palmer's was in 64. Nobody would have ever guessed that 
or that Tiger would win yeah. another one Until for a decade in yeah. 2008. Yeah. You know, the, the, the flame can burn out just as, as fast as it gets ignited. So the thing about Brooks, I, I think, that is, is, is interesting is that, one, he's still young. Um, I, I, love, I love the fact that I, I know the people who want him to do the media hate it, but I love the fact that, that he doesn't want to get caught up in the hype of what he's done. He just wants to show up, tell you what he's going to do, waylace to everybody, and then, and then go do what he needs to do. I, I, I kind of admire that. Uh, I, think in, I think that probably allows him to do best what he needs to do. I think he's figured that out. Um, I I can't see him changing his golf swing. It's not a golf swing that you would that you would want to change. Uh, in other words, it's 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 peculiar enough that it it defies the need for change. You know, it's not aesthetically beautiful like like Tiger's golf swing was in two thousand. That that it was almost so pretty that. You, you thought, well, is it is he after the aesthetics or is he after <laughs> what's going on here? I mean, so yeah. he was always tinkering with that golf swing. Tiger always tinkering. Mind you, it didn't bother him, but he's the exception. Um, if you look at some of the more peculiar golf swings in the game, they are the longest lasting. Yeah, that's a great point. Ray Floyd mm-hmm. was still winning golf tournaments at right at 50. Jim Furyk is amazingly consistent. Lee Trevino um, won in his 40s major championship. Phil Mickelson is one of the more idiosyncratic golf swings I've ever seen, and he's still competitive at 40. These are long-lasting golf swings, and I think one of the reasons is is that they, they are less inclined to tinker with them. They know them. They're, they're theirs. They own them you know, to some extent. They own these golf swings. And I think Brooks, he's got this move. He reminds me of uh, this generation's Hale Irwin, which is somewhat, you know, yes, very much sort of over the top in transition. He's got a very similar right elbow move in transition that shallows the the club out. Um, You know, for him to, you know, he's almost got the same position at the top that Hale had. Now, he is, you know, a hundred pounds heavier. I don't, you know, no, no, not a hundred pounds. He's Hale was a great athlete. Did play football. He, but was, he wasn't a power player. But yeah. not at all. Yeah. Hale's game was about mm-hmm. precision, and and it, that in up and over uh, cut shot he had was was dependable. And what I loved about the U.S. Open then was if you spend any time around Hale, you know, in a very short period of time that he is a very bright man and that he's patient and that to me he was the consummate u.s open champion he had patience he had uh, a very high intellect and he had a very dependable move um you know brooks is not a hundred pounds heavier than hale but considerably more muscular than hale was and can lift 500 pounds more than (laughs) hale probably did um so he is this era's um, power Hale Irwin is how I kind of look at him. And you know, Hale's golf swing 
stood the test of time. It's an in, up, and over the, you know, Bruce Litsky kind of a move. I, yeah, I used to talk to John Jacobs, the old teacher, not the player. Uh, I just played with John Jacobs last week. I played with JJ last week. You got some stories there. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but, but John Jacobs is a wonderful man who studied the golf swing. Mm-hmm. And he always said that the most reliable way to repeat and stay out there and play professional golf was an in up and over the top move. I couldn't agree more. And Sandy, um, you know, Sandy in Lyle, up and over. So many, yeah. Do you need to see any more than Bruce Lee? Even even Sam Snead slightly. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean Hogan. Mm-hmm. I mean almost all the greats took it in, uh, took it up and took it over. Almost all of them. You know, you, I mean almost all of them took the club way in the left arm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this insistence that the left arm goes straight back and the club stay outside your hands is is unique to this generation. And again, it's another one of these things that is being history, you know, history it, doesn't it, prove. It, it yeah. found mm-hmm. some. Mm-hmm some value um for no apparent reason just for aesthetics and but but brooks has a mini heller when uh a bruce litsky these were incredibly consistent players with with wonderful longevity so the whole point there being i don't see brooks messing with his golf swing i don't see brooks he seems incredibly unaffected by success which is you know which is one of the things that made Tiger Woods Tiger Woods, you know, just as hungry after mm-hmm. three majors as he was after two or eight as he was after one. I mean, it just success did not hobble him. Um, now, you know, off course decisions ended up hobbling Tiger Woods and, and that's part of his comeback story. So can Brooks avoid the pitfalls off of the golf course, um, because those can those can ruin a career or stall a career as quickly as a bad back. It's and so these are all the things you look at with Brooks, and you think, I hope he goes on this incredible run, and we have another player. We haven't had one in almost four decades. Well, yeah, right at four decades, basically. Um, win more than six major championships. You know, he's he's won four, and he's, he's not even 30 yet. Maybe his gift is something intangible that's hard to measure. Maybe there will be a measurement for calmness and, and grit and clutch. or But these things that allow him to make— That's called the U.S. Open. There you or go. Or what it yeah, used well, to be. Yeah, yeah. and this is going to be interesting because, you know, this is probably not the perfect setup for Brooks on paper, but nor was Shinnecock, although Shinnecock's a little wider probably than Pebble's going to be. So it'll be an in, uh, you know another place where he can prove that he has more game perhaps than he's been given credit for, but I do think there's something about his golf mind that is so far indecipherable. But I think it probably is the separator for him at the moment. I mean the strength is there, there's no question, and he plays a good modern game, an incredible modern well, game. But he's able to dial it up in the biggest moments with the most penal golf courses, and that takes something special. Well, look, this has been a this is a very timid generation of golfers uh, they're continually told what they're doing wrong uh, and they're seeking advice and all their games are in a state of flux to find someone who comes along with the belief that he has um, it's 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 shocking to see such complete belief in what he's doing and in himself you know Golfers used to have more of an arrogance in the 60s and I'd say even in the 70s uh, because they did dig it out of the dirt themselves. They felt like they owned it and it was theirs and they were battle-hardened, so to speak. 
uh, and and they played with an incredible belief. That, to some extent, I think is has been missing over the last generation and a half of golfers because they're surrounded by people who are always changing and reminding them of their weaknesses, and they're looking for help from all these. And and I think it it establishes a more. And I'm not saying they're they're timid. I'm saying they're more timid than their predecessors. Mm-hmm. As or, each generation may be in, yeah. in, in life in general. You know, maybe yeah, maybe yeah. they're yeah. aware of what they don't know. Right. But ignorance is is empowering to some extent. And and to believe that you are better than your peers. And to believe that your golf swing is the best out there and your game is the best out there, it's um, it's it's beautiful to see. You you just don't hear someone speak so authoritatively about their game and their talents. It's a great insight, and I, I think you know the fact that he wasn't really a part of the pipeline of, you know, the 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 great young juniors yeah. and the college players. I mean, he was good, but he was never touted as well. Right. You, you know. So right. that that gave him this underdog aspect well, and, and he started relying on himself more than yeah. perhaps yeah. you know people who were enabled by people telling them how great they were going to be yeah but most people who have that kind of belief are control players you know Trevino had that kind of belief mm-hmm. Nicholas had that kind of belief Hogan had that kind of belief you know where their words their demeanor their action it was palpable that they they knew exactly what they were going to do I wouldn't Think, nobody's going to call Brooks a control player. He's a power player with some control. and But to hear somebody speak so confidently about what they're going to do is is unique. I think he's a control player mentally. And I think that, that's a good point. Yeah, I think he's got great mental control. In control. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. That's That's well said. Well, You'd great. write that. And then, see, I'd read that, I'm, I'm and I'd listening. go, I'd I'm, go, I'm I'd go your, nice insight. Your, <laughs> I'm writing down a lot of your phrases, and I'm going to put my own little spin, and it won't be complete plagiarism. Anyway, anyway it's been a great pleasure, Randall. Uh, one of my, one of, you say that one of my uh, Mumfords and Sons, you ever listen to Mumford and Sons? I've heard they're, them, sure. They're a great yeah, band. I've heard them. They yeah. said <laughs> once that uh, that they steal lines from Shakespeare because it's easy to plagiarize Shakespeare because no lawyer's going to knock at your door. So just, just go to Shakespeare. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> First kill all the lawyers. I think Shakespeare said that. <laughs> he <Yeah. did. laughs> well, Thanks again, Randall. Great pleasure. We'll see you for episode six after the U.S. Open and probably right before the Open Championship. Look forward to it, Jaime. Thanks. Thank you. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.